Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is X Job Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Steve Thornton. Now, Steve runs Trojan Wellbeing, which basically deals with PTSD and mental health issues within Blue Light Services and the Armed Forces. Have I got that right, sir? Yeah, and I'm family members. Um I'm sure we'll get onto that as we get into Absolutely. the conversation, Matt. Absolutely. So thank you so much for taking part in this today um it's a very difficult role being a firearms officer and we've seen the the issues that have come out in the media recently around the the, the um shooting of a of a member of the public etc cetera, etc cetera. but let's start at the very beginning for you what was your inspiration to join the police and what are you all about <laughs> well I, I was I was at a sort of career choice. My my, uh, my dad was um, ex force. Why well, he was forces, so he was sort of fourteen twentieth. Um, so I spent you know obviously my my childhood moving around uh, UK and Germany. Um, so my, my career path was being sort of mapped out for me. I was going to go into the military, um, and then I, I met a girl as normally happens. Uh, and she was a, a volunteer police cadet with uh, Sussex Police because right. we were living down in Eastbourne at the time. So I thought, oh, to impress her, uh, I'll join the cadets, you know, to sort of, you know. Uh, and and from, from there, it was like, oh, I quite enjoy this, sort of like, you know, the, the, the police side of things. Um, originally uh, applied to join Sussex uh, back in, it's been 1981, 82, um and they originally said you know we're not recruiting at the moment but if you go up the road to the met they'll take anyone so i, I thought oh brilliant so I, I stuck in for the met uh and joined the police cadets and you know what what an absolute ball you know looking back on it now you know what being year was that sort of, uh 82 1982 right. i joined so uh yeah i was paired to sort of go climbing up snarden and canoeing and all sorts of things um and then originally uh, and then joined the the, the grown up police in 1983, uh, and then that's when the shock hit you. No more sort of canoeing and climbing up mountains, yeah. you know, walking around the streets of Battersea. You know, it's a proper culture shock. Um, but yeah, no, I lo- I've loved every minute of it. You know, uh, being in the police, you know, and I've made the most of it. Um, so yeah, that was my inspiration was trying to impress a girl, I suppose, in a way. But you know, obviously, when I did the interview, I wanted to change the world and help people. That was what I put on the statement. Yeah, of course. Was Battersea where you went to first of all? Yeah, I mean, and the funny story behind that is obviously during during the police cadets, you get a passed into an operational police station, uh, and I ended up going to Battersea uh, as a, as a police cadet. You know, so I was like the professional t boy and you know uh, admin bitch for all the old sweats. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I sort of um, passed out of uh, Hendon, um, I, I had my three choices, uh, and then ended up going back to Battersea. Uh, and the governor on the original relief that I was on sort of obviously recognised me and said, "Oh, you can come on to sea relief." And you know that was uh, that was it really. Brilliant. It's a proper sort of old school hard working relief, but you know they knew how to sort of uh, decompress afterwards. If you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And and they don't decompress anymore. And I think that might be some of the issues that they they face in later life. If I'm honest mm. with you, yeah. Was the fun fair still there at Battersea? Um, or had it what the one down by in the park? Common, or? Yeah, in the park. There used to be a fun fair in the park when I was a kid. Oh, uh, yeah, in Batsy Park. I'm just trying to think what we had uh, going on there because they just started to build the um, the, the Peace Brigada um, when I was there. So yeah, they, they had the children's zoo and yeah, and a bit of a fun fair in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I went there with a kid as a kid with my grandparents. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it, you know, like I say, it's different, different world, different time. Then, how long did you spend at Battersea? Um, so from eighty three until uh, ninety five, when I uh, 
managed to sort of, you know, successfully blag my way into uh, SO19, uh, the armed response vehicles, which had been recently set up, you know, following the murder of uh, Pat Dunn uh, in Clapham, obviously, you know, adjoining ground to Battersea. So it was quite uh, quite poignant for me to get into the firearms unit. But I don't already sort of qualified as a divisional shot, because back in those days, you had police officers at each station who were trained to sort of, you know, carry firearms. Um, so I'd already sort of had my, dipped my toe into the firearms world uh, and met sort of characters like Tony Long, who did my basic course and stuff. So that was an yeah. interesting time. <laughs> yeah, I can I can imagine. I've spoken to Tony a couple of times. I've never done a podcast yeah. with him, but I've spoken to him a couple of times. Uh, apparently, he, he likes to appear on television every so often. Yeah, yeah, yeah he does, yeah. <laughs> He's a good lad. He is. Um, you, you're a divisional shot or a, whatever, you know, whatever they called it in the Met then. Were they? Was it revolvers? It wasn't the like the Glocks and. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it's Smith and Wesson. Um, you had uh, twelve rounds, um, six obviously in the weapon, and, and then six. I mean, you you had them in your pocket normally uh, because you know you weren't sort of qualified enough to have you know the uh, the jet loaders in those days. So you had six rounds, you know, fishing about in your pocket. So try and doing a speed load, you know. How uh, funny. Yeah, picking the rounds out of your pocket, you know, and the pens and all the other bits and pieces. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what circumstances would you get deployed as a divisional shot? Well, Battersea, we, we were quite fortunate, and I suppose one of the reasons why we had shot. So we had um, Sir Charles Tidbury on our ground. Um, so he was the chairman of the William and Mary Orange Trust Fund. Right. So he was on the uh, top of the well, one of the uh, top ones on the list of the IRA. Oh, right. Uh, during that period of time. So we lived on the ground, so we would do like residential security for him. Wow. Yeah, my dad was a, a divisional shot from, you know, the early 70s, and because he'd been in yeah. the military, it was almost like, there's a gun. But it would yeah. get issued by the inspector. If there was an incident, uh, I don't know what it was like with you, but if there was an incident, it would literally be issued to, to take out. You wouldn't be carrying it all the time. Oh, no, no. Uh, you, um, I don't think we had any... Uh, incidents uh, prior to sort of, you know, going to 19 where it was a case of get back to the Nick and book out a gun. It was normally you would you do the sort of residential security at, um, at Sir Charles's place or you go and do a hospital guard. Right. There was no sort of like spontaneous no. uh, jobs that you were deployed for. Yeah, because we had an operation in the, in the early 90s, didn't we, where all the senior members of parliament, they got additional protection we had people around their yeah. ha- their houses. I know in Essex, um, we had people around, you know, around MPs' houses, living in sheds and whatever, in case there was. Oh a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked after sort of uh, Ian Paisley. He had a, I mean, that that was a glorified B and Q shed that you were sat in, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that that was interesting. He'd come out with a tray of teas in the morning, and his normal big booming voice shout "Good morning" to you. So you know, you think, oh. Fantastic. So but, just like a walking target, but you know. Oh yeah, good fun. Yeah, absolutely. And because those those days, and um, we remembered the uh, the bombings uh, or the bombing at Harrods. Yeah, was, that was a recent anniversary as well. Yeah, yeah. and and you know it was very very relevant to our style of policing then. I joined in eighty six, but even then it was you know very relevant. Mm. The IRA were yeah. were busy on the mainland. Yeah. What was the inspiration, though, to go on to SO19? Um, I, I'd always sort of been uh, interested in, in firearms. Obviously, you know, my dad around, you know, the work he used to do uh, was involved in firearms. Um, and, and just, I suppose, in, in a way, it was like, you know, we, we'd be at sort of certain incidents, um, you know, if it's sort of, you know, someone who sort of... Um, being sought after, who's so dangerous that you know firearms had to be deployed. You know, lifting the cordon tape for for the guys and girls on the, on nineteen. You just think, no, I want to do that. Yeah. I want to go and do this sort of, you know, drag the baddies out and, and deal with them. I don't want to be stood on a cordon. So I suppose that was uh, another little motivation. You know, I don't want to be the person who's standing in the background. I want to be at the front and, and dealing with this stuff. You know, that's why, you know, I joined the job really. You know, you want to get involved in that sort of stuff and get your hands dirty, don't you? So Yeah, absolutely. And what was uh, the selection process like though for four nineteen? Uh yeah, so it was um I think we a two or three day assessment process back then. Um 
and you did a lot of sort of team building stuff just to see how you would sort of react under stress. So you, you did all these um, little activities that, that you, you're never going to complete. And that's the way they, they were designing it. But so it just got people getting stressed. And, uh, and it was interesting to watch how people would act under stress. And uh, later on in life, when I became a firearms instructor, to be the other side of the fence looking at people, they knew what I now know what they were looking at. Uh, for the people going through it so yeah it was uh, about a two or three day sort of assessment you know with the fitness with the sort of you know team building problem solving you're know, making decisions on the hoof that type of stuff uh, and then an exam uh, and when i went for my a of e assessment uh, the exam had been set by hendon right and it was in the um early days of the red routes being uh, implemented in london and obviously someone sat in an ivory tower somewhere thought, oh, well, when we've got these armed response vehicles out on the streets of London, during the downtime, they can police the red routes. So the exam, I, I would say, was probably about 30 or 40% were all questions on red routes. Uh, and you, we all turned the exam paper off. I remember talking <laughs> when we sat up at Lippitt's still doing this exam, and we're all looking at these traffic sort of you know questions going, what the hell is this all about? You know, have I, have I come to the right place? Is, it, is this for traffic? You know, you're looking around thinking, this is for firearms, isn't it? And unsurprisingly, a lot of people failed the exam, uh, you know, passed everything else, but failed the exam. So 19 decided to sort of bin the exam because, you know, I thought, well, that's it. I, I missed my chance. I mean, I would have applied again and taught, you know, studied yeah. traffic law a bit more in depth. Um, but, the, but they decided to um, pass everyone uh, and ignore the exam side of things. So I managed to go and uh, have my interview um, with Andy Latto, because there's a name from the past, uh, quite a formidable character back in his time. And I, I still can't, I speak I speak to Andy on a regular basis because he's now a trained hypnotherapist. So we Is he really? Music. Yeah. Oh, if you can yeah, put him in touch with me, I'd love to do a, a, a podcast oh, mate, with him. He, interesting guy. He, he does a lot of work with a guy called Carl Smith who's uh, a big sort of um, name in the sort of hypnotherapy world. I mean, we use a couple of uh, therapists within Trojan Wellbeing who've been trained up by Cal. So wow. I mean, some of the work he does is 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 phenomenal, especially around sort of the, the PTSD and deep-seated trauma stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's, the, uh, look, it's years ago we didn't have any of this, did we? We People, no. just, people just poked no. up with it. I know it was, a, it was a different era and the decompression chamber was completely different to the ones that they've got now. But nevertheless, you're dealing with people that came from our era mm. who yeah. had the opportunity well, to, to and, decompress. You know, Andy Latto, I mean, if, I think if you just said to him back back then, back in the sort of your early 90s you know, and whatever, that you know, you, when you retire, you're going to go on to become a hypnotherapist and look after people. He would have laughed in your face. Yeah. Well, he would have given you that sort of like that grin and that he used to give. He thought you were and, bonkers. You know, he used to send shudders down your spine. <laughs> Absolutely. So, how long were you operational on ninety? I mean, accepting that training is still operational and you'd still get <clears> deployed, <throat> but how long were you well, doing the ARV element? So I went on to the ARVs in '95. Uh, Left in 99, and this was for I know, a woman. So, you know, there's a common theme to my sort of career choices here. Uh, and actually transferred up to GMP um, and, and mistakenly thought, well, it's like the second largest force in the country. So it's going to be very similar to the Met. Um, uh, and obviously, I had all my skills, you know, firearms, advanced driver, rifle, and that type of stuff. I thought, oh, they're, they're going to sort of, you know, lap me up you know i'll, I'll fit in quite nicely because you know they were uh, having their own issues with the firearm stuff so i transferred up to gmp uh, in 99 um put my papers in to come back to the met one year later when i realized it wasn't as good as i thought it was going to be and uh you know proper sort of uh, uh the story regarding the way you know ex-met were treated in gmp at that that particular time you know yeah. Let's say that none of my qualifications were recognised. You know, as I, as I landed from a different country. Um, so yeah, it was a frustrating time. But uh, came back in uh, 2002. But this is where GMP did me a bit of a favour because um, a certain inspector took a, a quite a bit of a dislike to me. Ended up with seven internal complaints, you know, ranging from going direct to court, 
uh, without booking on, even though I travelled with a detective in, in the court in the court case. It, it was proper petty stuff that was going on. But the the delay uh, waiting for, to be interviewed by their complaints department um, meant that. Uh, I was on the first direct entry back into 19. So when 19 put out oh, to wow. county forces, yep. direct entry, I was on that very first course. So if I had come back a year later as I originally planned, I would have gone back onto division back in Battersea, yep. or back in the Met, yep. and then had to reapply to go back into 19. Oh. So that, that delay meant that I could go back straight back into 19, which was, you know, brilliant. So I was back at Lippitt still doing another um AIV course uh, with people I've worked alongside so it's a bit of a bit of a reunion really so yeah, some uh, some good uh, some good lads on that and you do I know you find it in every industry every business you'll find pettiness but when somebody's got it bad for you they've got it bad haven't they there's, there's uh, uh, yeah. they say hell has no fury like a woman scorned well do you know what some managers within the police service are far worse yeah well, I, and, and that, I'm, I'm bringing up to present day. That's that's, I would say, the vast um, majority of the work we do with, through charge and wellbeing is looking after people who are going through the misconduct sort of witch hunt at yep. the moment. Uh, and you know, some of the stuff that they're dealing with is unbelievable. Uh, and you you think you know, people are losing their jobs over pettiness, and it's just crazy stuff. Um, it is, absolutely. but going back to your original question regarding operational stuff. So I came back in uh, 2002, uh, 2007. Uh, myself and a big lad called Ross Ferry both got fed up with being on relief, so we decided we we're going to become police firearms instructors. So went through the uh, the training to become instructors. So I started um, instructing in 2007. Um, and then I went back onto ops in 2010 onto a, a sort of a, a newly formed Trojan Proactive unit, uh, which uh, they, they concentrated on, you know, the armed sort of gangs around yep. London. Uh, and you know, we had uh, awesome, fantastic time because, you know, we're actually dealing with fast time intel, uh, you know, dealing with the real sort of you know, top level um, criminality that was going on in London. So, so taking out some big, Big players uh, in relation to that, um, yeah. So, I, and then that's where I finished my time was um, on the on the proactive unit in two thousand thirteen. Oh, so, yeah, it was a, a good time. And uh, I mean, it is interesting because the, the Trojan stuff was set up to stop the gang violence. It was black on black killings and robberies and and, and what have you. Um, and it's evolved, hasn't it? Because it encompasses all types of criminality and and mm. fr from a proactive perspective were you ever involved in any active shootings was there ever a, 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 a process yeah, where um, you to deploy so yeah two sort of directly uh and a couple just on the periphery really so you know i, I went through this sort of you know the uh, past incident uh, process um yeah with a couple of shootings because you are, are you pims trained or trim I'm I'm a I'm a trim I'm trim trend, uh, but uh, one of my roles as a firearms instructor was part of the post incident support program. Right. So any of my colleagues who are involved in sort of police shootings or, or traumatic events, you know, bearing in mind you know the sort of virtually paramedics out on the street, so they're dealing with some you know, gruesome stuff out on the street. Um, you know, we we would get them back it onto ops. So you know, they go through the OH sort of uh, procedures, and then they'd be passed to us, and we sort of gradually introduce them back into the firearms environment. Uh, and uh, depending on, on what they've been involved in, uh, we would sort of reconstruct that sort of situation to see whether you know they had any sort of re-triggers, whether it's you know, they, you know they weren't comfortable in that sort of setting. Um, it's just mainly for them, really, uh, you know, just to make sure they were okay. Yeah. They didn't have anything, any residual stuff that was in the background that was going to sort of come to the surface if there was a certain trigger or, or whatever. So, I mean, if there's an incident and a suspect is shot, what is the process from that moment where the suspect is shot to them returning back to the street? <laughs> Uh, Have we got well, long enough? Who, it depends who you talk to. I mean, if you chat to people like um, 
Tony and whatever, he'll tell you it's about 10 years. Um, and one of the reasons, when I, when I came back as a civilian uh, firearms instructor in 2016, um, one of my sort of responsibilities that I, I took on uh, was looking after Whiskey 80. So the guy involved in the wood green shooting, I knew him very well. You know, we were instructors together uh, and you know, I knew him and his, and his partner. Um, so I set about uh, um, you know, making sure he was being looked after and, and the well-being support regarding that. So if you bear in mind, you know, that shooting was back in 2015 and he's still not been dealt with. So, you know, eight years. And, you know, it's not, not just a case of, you know, being sat at home twiddling your thumbs. He's gone through the mill, been charged with murder, passport removed, all the things, you know, and it's it's been absolutely horrendous because people tend to forget that. It's not only him that's going through it. It's family, family. members, friends, colleagues. Yeah. And obviously following the recent stuff regarding the, the Chris Cabber shooting uh, and the outpouring of emotion, uh, and rightfully so from from you know my colleagues in certainly within nineteen were again they just felt that they're being let down by the government and senior officers. I mean I was in it was in nineteen with the Harry Stanley shooting. So when you know two of my colleagues had been charged with murder then, you know, and we, we handed our tickets in and we had all these reassurances that you know things would be different, you know uh how sort of you know uh, fire certainly firearms officers would be treated. Uh, if they're involved and actually doing what they're trying to do, you know, uh, and you know, no one leaves the house in the morning no. thinking, "Oh, today I'm, I'm going to go and shoot someone or murder someone." No, you know, that's it's, it's the furthest thing from firearms officer's mind, you know. A- absolutely, so, you know, absolutely. It's just, it's just that protection's needed. And and I find that I find the um, social media is a good thing and a bad thing. You know, you you get all these keyboard heroes who. They want to put something out bad about the police and about the authorities, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, they should do what we do. I never carried a gun. I didn't want to carry a gun. Mm. I never put my hand up to do it. That wasn't for me. You know, I, I could get myself in an awful lot of trouble without without carrying a gun. I probably wasn't, you know, sound enough to, to do it. But... um. But I feel for these for these people. I mean, Tony, ten years. This guy with the Chris Cabber, the hindsight police, and this is the other thing that you know, yeah. professional standards. They've got a job to do. We understand that, and everybody should be subject to scrutiny. But when you're carrying a firearm, nobody else is doing what you do. No one else has got that in their mind. Then no one else is making that split second decision, and nobody can see what you saw or what you felt at that particular time. And then you have to go and convince a jury of 12 people who may have had terrible experiences with the police Mm. to make a sound judgment. Now, you just hope that you get 12 people that are reasonable that are going to listen to you. But the current outpouring of dislike for the old bill I can't say that people are going to get a fair trial if they've been in the police service. No, no, not at all. And I just think, I think it's absolutely disgraceful that we're finding ourselves in this modern day and age where we've got all the all the evidence, all the intelligence is put online about these different people that are involved in gun crime and they're driving vehicles at other people, and then they get shot and they're the victims. Not, yeah. the, not, not the public at large. If If you don't take decisive action things escalate if you don't nip things in the bud if you don't deal with it there and then things escalate and i just i i don't know how people carry firearms in the british police service how the pfoa keep a membership going i do not know because it's a thankless task yeah i mean i i work very closely with the pfoa and mark and to be honest that was one of my first sort of uh inroads into sort of providing well-being uh when the pfoa where was uh, originally set up uh by mark when he was in 19 i was one of the sort of like you know original members um and when i retired in 2013 became a well-being coach for them you know so chatting to sort of you know colleagues up and down the country uh, and what they were going through uh, and I think, you know, the frustration um, from certainly, you know, my colleagues is, is this sort of like, you know, 
the, the evidence, you know, it, the evidence is put before these investigators, you know, uh, and even my basic knowledge is, uh, as a, a police officer is that you, you need to have evidence to take someone to court, you know. So where, why are they taking people to court when there's there's no evidence for that, that charge, you know? Well, <laughs> we, we know just, why. Just purely, purely a fact that they're... The IRPC have got this desire to sort of get someone, certainly from the firearms unit, done for murder, but for for, uh, for firearms incident, uh, and you know, and, and they've they've been shown to sort of go beyond above and beyond, yeah. What what's needed in investigation? I mean, you know, just looking at my mate, you know, 2015 is shooting eight years. So why? Why is it taking that length of time when all the evidence is there? I mean, he's, he's not denied no. taking the shot. There's, there's corroborating evidence. He's, all the evidence is there. So what what else can they, can they possibly look for in that eight-year period of time? <laughs> but certainly in the Metropolitan Police, it's politically motivated. Mm. You know, you, you've got a mayor that battles against the commissioner and the commissioner curtails to what the mayor wants. Mm. That's fact. You know, it's a a terrible thing to say. Mark Rowley's got the hardest job in British policing at the moment, trying to deal with a mayor that doesn't want policing. Yeah. And and that's the truth. I I can't understand. It's almost as if for for some of these some of these people, it's if if at first you don't succeed, try and try try again until you get the answer that you want. Yeah, and and yeah. kids joining the capital police today, they don't know any different. The job that we join is different to the job that they're joining, but the fact is that there are more risk now, not through getting shot or stabbed or any of that, but they're more risk of losing their job because somebody has taken a video of them, a thirty second video showing them punching a member of the public. What it doesn't show is the four minutes before that where they're having the living daylights kicked out of them. Yeah. And they and uh, and it doesn't suit the narrative of some groups. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't get it. I just don't get it. No, it's uh, and I think what people want is robust leadership. Uh, you know, if, if and I'm sure we've all come across people who are wrong and in the job and they've been dealt with. And need to be, absolutely. And, and, right, and rightfully so. I mean, I think back to sort of like, you know, um, the, the Kenneth Noy job and Fordham yeah. uh, be, being murdered yep. in the grounds. And, and, you know, the people responsible for supplying that information to Noy, if that if that was a police officer, then they deserve to be dealt with in, in you know, a, in the strongest a, a terms, as yeah. possible, and banged up and, and whatever. Yeah. I mean, I've got other things I'd like to do, but yeah, you know, so I don't think you, you, you speak to one police officer who will say, you know, we're not going to deal with sort of the the, uh, the wrongings in the job, but you know, all this narrative at the moment, you, you think that everyone who is facing a misconduct is a wronging, and it's like you know, guilty by allegation. Uh, which is what we're finding, and, and added to that, now um, I don't know what why Mark Rowley is taking this path. It's like you know he's, he's set himself this sacking sixty people per month. I mean, what what is he hoping to achieve by that? Who, who's he looking to? Because it's like you know you, you'll give Calm what he wants, and he'll still want more. I mean, when he when Calm first first took office, he was all against stop and search. Oh, it was so wrong and what have you. And then, so stop and search was, was sort of you know, curtailed. Yeah. Guess what? Knife crime murders went up yeah. and all the other things. So then next, he's, he's out there saying, yeah, we need to do more stop and search to sort of save our people out on the streets. So you think, so Mark Raleigh needs to sort of take a step back and think, right, I need to sort of start looking after my troops. Because uh, going back to some some bloke by the name of Richard Branson, he said, "If you look after your employees, guess what? They'll look after business for you." Yeah. But if you if you're going to treat your employees the way they're being treated at the moment, well, guess what? The business is going to be toxic, and it's not going to work. Absolutely. And that's what we're finding now. We're getting more people leaving, certainly oh. within the Met, leaving the Met than actually going in. I think September and October, 
they had three people join the Met. And they're, they're looking for 150 a month. That's we we haven't got enough vacancies <laughs> for the amount of people that want to, to leave. That That's the yeah. bottom line. You know, we're not getting the vacancies come through, but we're getting so many inquiries from so many former police officers or police officers are still serving that are desperate yeah. to leave because they don't know when they're going to get a knock on the door. Someone's going to look at a WhatsApp that they sent four years ago. Yeah. It's absolutely, it's disgraceful. That's That's what it is. Mm. I get it that people that have got, you know, if they're misogynistic, if they're racist, if they're homophobic, all those things, it needs to be dealt with in the appropriate way. Now, some things are said in humour and aren't meant with malicious intent, Mm. but we're no longer allowed to have personality or a sense of humour in the police service. You're not allowed it. Because it gets yeah. knocked out of you by somebody who's never taken part in a joke or is offended because they didn't get promoted to the next rank or, or whatever it may be. And I just find it really disturbing that in this day and age, they should be banding together. They, they, but they're not. They're, they're pushing each other apart. Yeah. As I say, I just don't get it. Well, it's, it's, that, it's that divide and conquer, isn't it? You know, when I, when I joined, um, you know, that the relief was a very sort of, you know, bonded unit. Uh, and you, know, you had to be a pretty sort of strong sort of supervisor to sort of, you know, deal with that. Uh, and what would tend to happen on the relief is that if there's anyone that was out of order, they were dealt with by the PCs on the relief, you know, your, your senior yep. PCs, because, you know, now I think, you know, if you've got four years and you're still on the response team, you know, you're the, you're the old sweat. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when I when I came on to relief, I, I had PCs with 25, 26 yeah. years service. You know, sort of proper old school. So it was quite a robust relief. And and if the PCs couldn't sort out the problem and that, that problem went to the, the the skipper, then there was something seriously wrong. You know, and the and the skipper would be looking at senior PCs going, Why haven't you sorted this yeah. mess out? You know, why am I having to deal with this this yeah. stuff coming coming to my door? You know, and that's that's how it was dealt with, you know, and, and we looked after each other. That was a proper sort of like, you know, blue family. You know, we, yeah, you know, there's there's plenty of banter and piss taking because uh, that, that, that's, the that's way it how was. it was. If someone, if, if someone needed help and support, then that help and support was there for them. Uh, you know, if they're dealt with a quite a griefy sort of job, a fair to lot or whatever, you know, you get the usual piss taking, but you'd also get, are you all right, mate, type yeah. stuff as well. Uh, which you know is just not there at the moment, you know. And I chat to sort of you know colleagues, serving colleagues now, and I just think, well, where is your sort of decompression time? Where where are the people that are looking out for you, seeing the changes in your personality and your behaviour? Where you're starting to sort of you know your stress content is getting full, and you're just not having time to sort of empty it. You know, who's picking up those little warning signs and stepping in before you finally break? Yeah, and um, that's what's happening. We're, we're picking up people who have got to that stage where it's they've been broken, and you know, and you're going to try and repair them as a pastor. Let's let's pick them early doors. What level of service have these people that are coming to you got? I mean, <laughs> uh, we, we've got well, I mean, from, from student officers, um, you know, guys and girls who are just sort of overwhelmed by workloads and, and pressures put on them all the way up until you, the people who are looking to leave have just had enough. You know, I've got people with 28, 29 years service uh, who have been um, served with gross misconduct papers for stuff which is just unbelievable. And, and the cynic in me thinks, well, hold on a minute, is this the organisation trying to serve a bob or two by getting these people thrown out the job before they get the big sort of, you know, pension and all that sort of stuff, you know, when they've done the 30 years or how many years people need to do now to, to get out the job. Um, you know, I, I'm seeing so many people coming through who are at that stage yeah. in their career and you just think that there's, there's more to it than just this that, that's going on, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So how does it work then? Um, somebody listening to this gets served with – uh, reg 15s or whatever they're called today, but reg 15s get served with papers yeah. and their stress level goes through the Richter scale out the top. What do they do? They call you. How do you get in, engaged? 
Yeah, so so normally uh, it's it's by word of mouth. I mean, you know, we're a victim, let's say, a victim of our own success, but people are, are putting it out there. So they know of colleagues who have gone through the misconduct process. Um, you know, I'd never sort of said don't you know liaise with your your Fed rep or union rep if you're police staff. Always get them on board because you know that they are there to yeah. sort of you know uh, provide that support for you but what we'll find in time and time again is that the fed rep is overwhelmed uh you know the workload is unbelievable and they can't provide that sort of time that they'd like to for each individual um some of the advice um colleagues are getting it isn't all that brilliant um you know we've had to um signpost colleagues to sort of other sort of legal advisors uh, and get the right support for them um but what normally happens so someone will sort of say you know trojan wellbeing will provide some support for you from the well-being all the way up to sort of like legal support and you know, uh, helping you get the right information uh, and clearing up a few sort of points around the sort of the process because it's quite an anxious time you know yeah when absolutely. you go through that you know everyone thinks oh yeah suspended sat at home twiddling your thumbs happy days you know you're getting full pay but it, it's a very lonely place mm. uh, and you know and and we, we we deal with a lot of people who are really struggling with their sort of mental health during that period of time um you know because they drop like a hot potato you know no one from work contacts them because they think they're going to get into trouble and in some cases they've been told not to contact them so they're in this complete isolation uh, and yeah it just destroys you it does i mean look over 30 years don't get me wrong i got served reg reg nines were they then and you know all that i got served with papers like everybody did yeah yeah but it is really stressful and the impact it has on your family i got I got served um, on the back of the Essex Boys stuff um, when Tate Tucker and Rolf got killed. And every, you know, I say everyone, but the detritus of a working CID office, it was property or, you know, pocketbook yeah. was out of date, whatever it may have been. Duty roster, I mean, it was very, very, very low level and, you know, nothing. But you got served with papers. What you also knew yeah. is that you had two colleagues that had been remanded in custody. So you yeah. knew that there was a full on investigation taking place. You knew you'd done nothing wrong, but of course, you don't know what they're doing in the background. You don't know what investigations yeah. they're carrying out. And I know the impact it had on me to be served with papers on Christmas Eve in 1996. I mean, oh, nice timing. Very, yeah. very kind. And, and as they give you papers, and everybody, we queued up like naughty school children at headmaster's office. And as we walked yeah. away, you know, the person serving the papers wishing us a Merry Christmas. And you just want to say, yeah, you can stick that one, mate. Because the impact mm. it had on us at home was overwhelming. And we hadn't been involved in a fatal shooting or a death in custody. Yeah. or We hadn't been involved in anything. It was, it, you know, it was effectively not made up, but it, it was it was minutia. But I could only imagine what that must be like having been stuck on again afterwards because, you know, complaints come in whilst you're busy. But to be stuck mm. on and you've been involved in a fatal shooting and you've been involved in a death in custody and you're totally dismissed. And and like you say, you find out who your friends are because the ones that come around and figuratively, they don't have to put it on Facebook that they've put their arm around you and said everything's going to be all right. Mm. They just have to be there for you. Yeah. And and you can count your real friends at the end of your thirty years on one hand. Yeah, well, one of one of the old sweats uh, when I first joined Battersea said that to me. He says, uh, "You're not going to get many friends in the police. You, you'll have shed loads of colleagues." Yep. He said, "But you won't have many friends." And I thought, "Is that a, a dig at me? Is it that sort of because I'm not a, a likable person?" But you know, w w when you get to the other end, you think, "You know, he's right." You know, and I thought, "Yeah, I'd say, yeah, four or five, I could probably." call upon um you know within uh, within police and obviously a, a lot more now has set up charge of yes. well-being you know, it's a, you know there's about 700 i can call on now sort of you know so it's a, it's a, i was feeling lonely so i set up a peer support group you know so i could chat <laughs> um, uh, but yeah it's so going back to it so anyone reaching out for support i think it's just that not knowing um, you know, and, and when you're going through it, uh, it's what I found. It was so um, refreshing to talk to someone else who'd been through it or was going through it, uh, because then you felt, yeah, 
you had that connection. Uh, and this is what we've got now. I mean, I, I set up a, uh, a dedicated misconduct support group um, early part of this year. So we you know, started off with about sort of 10, 10 members. Well, we've got 140 now. Wow. Uh, within that group. And it's, it's without doubt our most proactive group. Um, so much so we, you know, we have, uh, I've run a couple of workshops around the country now where, you know, they've been able to come uh, and do the first to first stuff because all well and good doing, you know, stuff like this and on WhatsApp and whatever, but it doesn't replicate, you know, that being first to first and just sort of, you know, um, being able to chat to people and, and have that connection there. So they've been extremely successful and, uh, and, you know, the feedback we've had um, from a couple is that they've been lifesavers for them. And that uh, that is, you know, you, you look at the amount of um, suicides that are taking place within the blue light services, yeah. within the military, it's overwhelming now. It's beyond, yeah. it's beyond overwhelming um, and people need to sit up and listen that former police officers are taking their lives because they cannot deal with the additional stress of spurious complaints. Now, don't get me wrong, the complaint process is put in place so that people can have their say. I've made complaints, um, Mm. which have been upheld, uh, but I I know the process. I know that I wouldn't be making a complaint if I didn't think that somebody had done something wrong. But, yeah. but we all see the malicious and spurious, and what we also see is we see vindictive members of the professional standards departments across the country who see mm. it as their natural job to isolate and intimidate and absolutely destroy the good reputations of some very fantastic people. Then yeah. They need yeah. to concentrate on the wrong ones instead of going on a personal crusade. Yeah. Uh, and you're you're spot on in relation to that. And uh, it's like you say, you know, let let's go further up the stream and find out why these people are throwing themselves in the river. Uh, and you know, I, th- I feel very privileged to to be able to talk to colleagues who've reached out for support, who found themselves in those very dark places, and for some have actually attempted to take their own life, just to get their thought process. You know, what was it that sort of tipped them over? Why? Why did you feel you had no other options available to you? And a, a lot of it was, you know, they just felt ashamed because their integrity uh, had been challenged. And, and you think as a police officer, that's our core. You yeah. know, it's that integrity. You know, if you're not trusted and you, if you're not trusted by your colleagues, then that is, I mean, it's it's so, it's devastating for, mm. for that, that person. You know, I, I know when I went through my um, gross misconduct, I've, I was virtually like paraded in front of my my colleagues as, as I had my sort of pass taken off me and handed back my uniform, escorted off the firearms training centre, having been evicted from my instructor's room. And it and you know that and that sort of you know despite all the stuff I do in relation to sort of like self care and you know practicing what I preach, that's still very bitter and burned away and, and really sort of fuels this desire to sort of. These people need to be held accountable for the way they treat people, you know. And I, I deal with colleagues. I mean, one, one guy, um, the the DPS or the PSD yeah, uh, yeah. down in uh, Sussex, actually sort of dressed up as postman when they sort of nicked him. And you think, okay, he, he must have been a big player. And it is his crime was that apparently his wife alleged or his ex-wife alleged that he'd hacked into her Amazon account. And you, I think you know, we used to plan up ops like that for sort of you know major players, you know, when <laughs> using postman disguises to go and nick someone. You think, you know, what are these people on? You know, what what sort of power trip is that for for some people? You know, nicking know. people at two a.m. in the morning for an allegation that's nearly three months old. You're thinking, why? Uh, who's who's written that up? You know, <laughs> I spoke I spoke to a colleague the other day who's been stuck on, been investigated. For something that allegedly happened in a relationship ten years ago, yeah. Well, uh, where where is the um, necessity and proportionality? Bear in mind that is a byword of policing. Where is that in within that? And he's still yeah. suspended, and he's still waiting. When I I was the DI, I got promoted. I'd been temporary DI for ages, and I I got finally got promoted. And the day they promoted me, they made me temporary DCI. 
And my one of my sergeants, who's a nice lad, really, really nice lad, but mm. he was going through a domestic situation with his missus. They had a bit of a bundle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I get a phone call. I'm out with my parents celebrating my promotion to inspector and my temporary chief inspectors, and we're out, and I get a phone call from a mate. He says, oh, hi, Paul. I've got such and such here at the force control room. So I said, oh, yeah, what, what's he done? Well, he's gone and had domestic with his wife. He's been in an argument, blah, blah, blah. I said, right, okay. Tell him to come to my office Monday morning. Right. Have you arrested him? No, I haven't arrested him. Right, okay. So he comes in, left, right, left, right, left, right. Sit down. I said, right, we need to help you. I'm going to give you four instructions here. One, don't contact your wife. Um, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. Okay, you contact me twice a day. I need to know what you're doing. I'll pull you back off the edge. So this is on the Monday. On the Thursday, I get a phone call. Hi, boss. Yeah. He says, I've done something really stupid. I said, oh, what have you done? He said, well, he said, I've... Um, I've gone into my wife's personal email accounts and I've changed all of her details. He said, I found out she's having a relationship. They're split up. I found out mm. that she's having a relationship. So I said, right, okay. So I said, what are you going to do now? He said, I'm going to kill myself. So I said, no, you're not. So I get my sergeant and a DC, go and get him, take him to a psychiatric unit. Because yeah. my view, my view was, and I'm a little bit old-fashioned, it's better to deal with the problem and it's resolved rather than go, oh, you know, professional standards. So, yeah. and and the view was if he just booked himself in there for a couple of days, get the appropriate help, actually mm. PSD will look upon that with some sort of favour and say, yeah, you've obviously got problems. What a silly bugger didn't book himself in. I get a phone call from the DS to say, you know, Paul, this is what's happened. So I said, look, we are, we've got no option now. We've, we've, we've got to arrest him. I'm really sorry. Yeah. I'll come down, but this guy's in East London. I'm in, in North Essex. So they nick him. He goes, absolutely apoplectic. Now, I get it because he's not thinking straight. He's never spoken to – the fact that I'm trying to save his career, Yeah, he's never spoken to me since. And you just think you, you can't I, – I never wanted to get anybody in trouble. I'd rather give him a, a – you know – Words of advice at the time, yeah, all right. If they'd nicked a fiver out the till, that's completely different. Yeah. But if they've done something stupid that could be just dealt with there and then, management advice done, yeah. And when the boss says to me, Paul, why didn't you refer that up the road? Well, I've dealt with that. Yeah. I don't need to. I don't need to send it up to professional standards. It's just honestly. I no, no, it's uh, the, the the job is so risk averse now, and I think you know any little complaint now is just. It's just papered straight away, and you're thinking, you know, that could have been dealt with, with you know, a decent super. Well, I mean, I'm I'm not going to put the the blame completely on supervisors. PCs, oh, no, PCs on the relief. Sort this, sort it out. You know, look after your colleagues because you know, going back to 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 that lad, that DS, there must have been people who knew that he was having problems, yeah. with a relationship. Then that's that's the early in- intervention. Yeah. You know, before you do anything daft, you know. Let, have a word with yourself. If you need some support, you know, phones off. There's support out there, and, and you know when when you come to sort of broken relationships, I mean the canteen's full of experts in that. You know who'll be able to sort of give you guidance and that, and give you you know advice. That yeah, there is life after marriage, mate. You know if you if you are going to go through a breakup, guess what? You, you're going to be all right. You're going to come out the other side. Yeah. Um, you know, so just just having chats with that, and and again. This is exactly what what we do within within charging. So most people come to us and say, "Well, you know, I'm not sure whether anyone's going to be able to deal with this. You know, what I'm going through." And I say, "Well, the only way to find out, mate, is just tell us what's happening." Yeah. And and most people will, will say something, and there's always someone say, "Yeah, I've gone through that, mate." And what you need to, and the, and they're just blown away by the amount of support that comes out because most of it is fear of being judged. Um, and you know that that's one thing people aren't within the group because you know. So many just gone through so much crap out there. Oh, yeah. know, no one's judging you. But but what they do know is what it's like to be in that in in those shoes and going through that. And what they would have wanted when they were going through that sort of dark place. So this is what we provide now. So not only is it the the peer support and chat to other people who actually understand, uh, we can put them in touch with you know the, the therapists and counsellors who themselves 
uh, are either from a blue light or military background. So you've already got that connection. So you're not chatting to someone who's who's just come out of university and, and is, is read upon Freud and all the other bits and pieces and, and can quote all that stuff. You know, they actually talk your language. Yeah. So you don't need to explain, you know, what it's like doing a Sunday late turn and it's just domestic city. You know, people know, you know, know what it's like to do a, a night duty onto a quick changeover and over that wrecks you. So you've got that connection. And I think, you know, we've had so much success where people are responding well to the different therapies and counselling sessions. Um, you know, that, that, that's building as well. So we've got a, a network of about 30 plus counsellors and therapists we can tap into. Wow. So if anyone reaches out for support, uh, they're normally chatting to one of the guys and girls within 24 to 48 hours, not eight, 12 weeks down the line. That you know, you hear horror stories with some of the employment assistance programs. So they're chatting to people and getting the support on top of the the peer support that's there from as well. Which nine times out of ten, that's all that people need is just sitting down and having a brew with someone and having a chat with yeah, someone absolutely. who understands. You know, it's it's not rocket science. How how do you get funded? <laughs> well, we're in the process of um, transitioning to a charity at the moment. Um, Good luck. Yeah, we're on our third application, uh, but we, we've uh, we've actually utilised the services of um, some a professional to get our application done. I mean, and funnily enough, you know, she's uh, well, she's next midwife and uh, paramedic, so you know that link with the blue light. So she's actually got a vested interest yeah. in, in, in what we do anywhere. Um, so she's helping us to get the application across. So we just put in our third application. Uh, well. to, to get that sorted we've had to trim stuff because you know, it's like anything when you set out you know you, you want to do everything for everyone you yeah know? of course you do uh, so we've had to trim it all the way back down to sort of just the peer support how do people get hold of you? i mean i'm going to put all your links in in the body of the uh the the podcast in all the, all the text associated to it but how do people get hold of you if they need your services and how do they support you as much as anything else well, this is this is what we're finding is that um, you know people have come through Trojan Wellbeing and, and have, we've helped. They they want to give back and help colleagues. Um, so the way of contacting us, um, I mean, funnily enough, I was having a chat with a governor from GMP um, regarding running some workshops and and doing some stuff for for him. Yeah, um, it's it's all about word of mouth. I mean, we're all over social media. I mean, and you obviously see this yeah. stuff on LinkedIn that we do. Um, not that I'm an ambulance chair, so, but you know, if if someone passed something and, and you, you can see that they're, they're struggling, I always sort of just sort of mention this. Um, but I think the main one is is word of mouth, which at the end of the day, I mean, that's 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 gold dust for us. You know, if you've got a colleague saying you need to speak to the guys over at Charge and Wellbeing, then someone's going to take more notice than that than someone just giving them a leaflet. You know, and, and we're underneath the telephone number for Samaritans or something. Do you think that the the federation could engage more with you? Um, I was hoping uh, I was hoping to have a really good working relationship with the federation, especially when my mate Steve Hartson took over the rounds, because um, me and Steve were both on the cars together. Right. Uh, and early doors. I mean, I, I chatted to Steve about you know, what what we could do. I've been promised a meeting, you know, with a well-being lead for the last sort of two years now, and you just, you know, they're just not sitting down the table with us. Mm. Um, so I don't know whether this is as a bit of a, a threat to them, um, and you know, I try and reassure them we're, we're not in, in any way trying to undermine no. what the police federation do because you know they perform a very, very valuable role, yeah. certainly within policing, um, but. We, we want to work alongside them and actually sort of support them and provide, you know, the support we can support. I mean, there are other groups of a similar ilk to yours, aren't there? Yeah. And, how, you know, do you think there's an opportunity of a collaborative approach with other organisations? Because, there are, yeah, you know, you've, you've got a lot of people aiming in the same direction and you've all got brilliant yeah. skills. It's how – because I, I, I know um, – PTSD 999, they're going through a similar process to you around the charity yeah. element. And you've probably got a, a massive crossover between the, the, the two groups, you know, and, and strength is power, isn't it, if you've got enough people that are pulling in the same direction? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I work very closely with Daz and Gary over at PTSD 999. Um, you know, they've, they've actually tapped into our sort of network of counsellors and therapists. 
you know, I, I'm very much, and I will delegate or well, pass people on to sort of people who specialise sure. in that area. I mean, I, and I see you've got the book Copper's Lot there. So I was speaking to Rob Hindley, um, who, you know, who was at one of my workshops up in Manchester, and I had a long conversation with him because he's a trustee for Call for Backup. Yeah. And again, do some fantastic work. Uh, and I was saying to Rob, you know, I said, you know, because they're, they're sort of quite some distance ahead of us in relation to the way they've set things up, I said, you know, working with you and, and you know, combining our resources will make us a, a force to be recognised. Yeah. You know, um, and added to, and I was chatting to Andrea Quinton as well, yep. Thin Blue Line. Um, so, you know, I'm all about doing this sort of collaboration because you know we're a long way behind the military and and what they're doing oh, sort of charity wise and the support i mean you know and i've been quite fortunate to tap into a couple of the military charities to help out serving colleagues you know i had one guy from merseyside who was really struggling uh, but i found out he was the next sort of role engineer so i, I tapped up sapper support who gave us some money for his therapy after Brilliant. it all stopped so i will work with whoever i, I you know, and I think it, the these charities who sort of think, you know, this is my ball, I'm not going to share it. And, you know, we, we've come across, I mean, and I appreciate, you know, funding it is is quite sparse for for, for the yeah. area that we're in. And, and they're keen to sort of get the money into their sort of cause. And, you know, they see us as a bit of a threat if we're coming on the scene and actually doing what it says on the tin, um, you know. This is a bit of a threat in relation to that. But uh, I, I signpost people to Police Care UK with the stuff that they do. They've done some phenomenal stuff uh, and supported people. Um, you know, So I will tap into as many resources as possible. Oh, good it's, man. It's not a case of I'm going to take on the empire as Trojan well-being and that's it. You know, it's, it doesn't work that way, does and it? And you can't, <laughs> can you? You can't fight every battle on your no. own. You need to have you know like-minded people doing the, doing the same thing. But what was your gross misconducts? <laughs> well, this this is it's like a and finally news at ten. So when when I came back into uh, the Met as a civilian police firearms instructor, I've set about a lot of well-being initiatives. Um, you know, from introducing firearms officers to yoga, which was a feat on its own. Yeah. We had to rebrand it fitness yoga to trick them to get them through the door. But you know, they loved it so much and, and uh, enjoyed the 15 minute meditation at the end. So that was that was that bit. Um set up a contemplation room down at the firearms training, just somewhere so people could go, which wasn't didn't look job. You could go and decompress. But my main one was increasing sort of mental health sort of literacy with my peers and supervisors. So I wanted to sort of get them trained up in mental health first aid. Um, so I set about getting some funding for instructors courses internally. So, you know, you could actually have sort of police officers teaching the mental health first aid. You know, you didn't want someone coming in from outside, sat in front of a lot of areas, coppers telling them, you know, this is what mental health is about, you know, and yeah. they're just looking at this person. Well, what do you know about those <laughs> the trauma we face? So I wanted it to be, you know, police teaching police, because I think people respond that Agreed. way. So I eventually got the funding through Met Friendly. It took nearly two years to get the funding, because uh, I tried all the usual avenues internally, just, just batted off. Uh, so I got this funding, approached my boss, because um, we'd had a working party and it's all documented. Yep. I said, I've got the funding. He said, oh, excellent. So I was then approached by another inspector who said, oh, you're not authorised to go on the course. I said, beg your pardon. He said, no, um, 19 aren't going to go down the route of mental health first aid, so we're not authorising you doing the course. If you want to do the course, you've got to do it in a private capacity. So I thought, okay. So I took annual leave. Went and did the course, passed as a mental health first aid instructor, came back, and then I was served purpose saying I'd obtained the, the funding fraudulent by fraudulent means, and I've uh, failed to follow the guidance of a line manager. So basically, I, I still went on the course, even though I've been told not to go on the course. So I was then investigated for gross misconduct. Well, criminal, uh, initially, because they said I'd used fraudulent means to obtain the funding. And after he met friendly, went, well, well, no, he didn't. <laughs> he, he, he's not sort of defrauded us because uh, he, he was open and transparent. And, and all the emails suggested that, you know, but they were leaned on, but still didn't do a victim statement. So there's not, this is what I say about evidence. 
There was no evidence there. And even the fact finding was, was was a farce because they disregarded some of the sort of evidence in relation to that. So that went on for sort of 12 months. Um, my union rep at the time was just sort of saying, well, where's your evidence? This is not even gross misconduct. It's, uh, it's not even misconduct, you know. So they had to sort of try and change the, the wording of the, uh, of the allegations. My restrictions, this, this was a funny one, my restrictions was I'm not, I wasn't allowed to offer any welfare to any police officer. That was one of my restrictions. I was working for the PFOA as well as a wellbeing coach. And that would that was a restriction they gave me. And that was all because I was like a, one of the sort of like top mental health first aiders at the uh, firearms place. And I was looking after people from not only firearms units, but other people from other units were hearing about me, coming to me for, for support. And I was getting them sort of signposted. So, yeah, so uh, eventually got to my uh, hearing um, and both sort of matters were unproven, unsurprisingly, uh, and an apology from the chair of the panel saying, you know, it's embarrassing that we find ourselves in this situation. Obviously, then he had a bit of a reflection later on because I was served with a management action uh, saying I was naive and taking the fund in the first place, you just think. Um, but the, the, the other thing that really sort of uh, eats away at me is that um, the sergeant at the time who investigated me had actually helped him with welfare because his wife had throat cancer. One of the prosecuting witnesses who provided evidence was another sergeant who had got him and his family and kids to go to Centre Park through Police Mutual and spending money from the PFOA. So two people had actually helped. And, and just to rub salt in the wounds, whilst I was off suspended, both those sergeants went away and did a mental health first aid instructor's course and are now running the mental health first aid training for 19. I think they so, call that professional jealousy, don't they? <laughs> I think I professionally embarrassed the old lot of the management at 19 because I called them out saying, you're not really providing well-being and welfare support. You know, they gave me all the usual flannel about, oh, we've got 45 mental health first aiders and we've got blue light champions. And I, and I said to the chief inspector, I said, well, I said, you name me them. You tell me who they are. He said, oh, I've got a list somewhere. I said, well, that's, you should know who your mental health first aid are because they should be proactive. They should be coming around saying, how are you doing, boss? How are you feeling? You know, because that's that's what I was doing and that's why I was so popular. Is that, you know, I would actually walk around and I, I'd sort of say, how are you doing, Matt? And that's the thing, because you were popular and, and, and this is where the professional... Jealousy comes in. I won't name. Yeah. I won't name the name. But my my brother put my brother was a superintendent. I was a DI, and my brother put a sticker on my door, office door, head of morale, because I would go around every day, and I was yeah. in this little office in the one of the um, control room spurs, the crime desk, and every day I'd go around before I start my day. How are you doing today, Chris? How are you doing, Steve? Everything all right? Yeah, good. Okay, he has a family. Blah blah. Everyone before I even started yeah. my day's work. And he put that up there, and the superintendent, who was my boss in charge of that area, came in and ripped it down because nobody liked him. Yeah. Nobody liked him, and that's where the professional jealousy comes in. Yeah. Well, I remember saying to one boss, because he kept saying, oh, I've got an open door policy. I said, yeah, walk through it sometimes and go and talk to people. Yeah. Man. Don't expect people to come to you because they're not going to come to you, are they? No. Go out there, make a brew, have a chat with people. I said, that's when you find out what is actually going on 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 your team, on your relief, uh, and where the problems are. You know, just start making a brew, you'll you'll get so much intel. It's like like cultivating informants. Yeah, it it? is. It's just that, you know, it's simple stuff. And they come and tell you about all their problems or what's going on or, you know, such and such is up to this problem, got this problem. But anyway... Well, yeah. so before we conclude this interview, and I say this to everyone, is there anything you'd like to add, alter, or correct in relation to the statement that you've made today? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll put it through my solicitors first, mate, and uh, yeah, I'll get my guys to talk to your guys. Yeah, perfect. I'll speak to you in 24, and if you want me to tip out to anything, I'll go in a heartbeat. That'd be fantastic, mate, because um, when I run these workshops, we're all about um people sharing lived experiences that, that's the main focus but i want to give people that hope when they leave the 
the ones oh. that are okay, that they're going to be all right. They'll be so fine. chat to people who've come out the other side yeah. and are in one piece. I mean, you know, look at you. You're only 25 years old, so you're doing well for yourself. <laughs> yeah. I wish. I wish. But, yeah, you're right. There is there is an end game, and not everybody wants to work for the man. They don't want to go back and work for the police, and I get that. Um, mm. Not everybody wants to go and work for somebody. They, they want to work for themselves, and I can help them with that as well, you know, and it's um, – that's fantastic. And, and what we're specialising at the moment is obviously all the ones that go leaving because of misconduct. I mean, they're, they're struggling to find work. Yeah, and I can push them the, in the right the direction. The job's taking that extra bit out and, and with, with a reference to say, yeah, they've done the gross misconduct. Yeah. And some companies have sort of been in people because of that. Yeah. Have a cracking time, Matt. Um, Thank you. And like I so said, if you need anything, you've got our details. If you know anyone who needs support, yeah, no, please absolutely. send them our way. All right, mate. God bless you. Take care. Right. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.